Hello, hello, and welcome to yet another exciting, interesting, unpredictable episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, who didn't have the microphone in the right place, joined by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser, my microphone is always in the wrong place at the right time. <laughs> so uh, if anyone heard, we did an episode a little while back and Gabriel was asking me, he was ambushing me with questions about fractions um, and caught completely unprepared and under pressure. I wilted <laughs> like a flower in the summer heat and was unable <laughs> to deal with these fractions. However, luckily, I don't have to feel bad about it anymore because we discovered today that maths is racist. <laughs> maths is racist, Nick, so it's okay. Oh, thank goodness. I thought for a second there that it was like important and I should take pride in my ability to do math, but apparently not because it's racist. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I have to apologize to all our listeners because I definitely made fun of Nick for not being right. able to do really well no, exactly exactly you you are you should reflect on it you should examine your privilege and you should strive to do better as the yeah. kids say <laughs> so who is this great sage this wise uh, font of knowledge who is providing us with the idea that um who, who's unveiling unveiling this great truth that maths is in fact racist so it is uh, an organization called equitable math and it is sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. <laughs> There's a whole organization. I thought it was a rogue academic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> very well funded. They have, oh, no. so I should just say, I haven't read all of, they've got five steps to saving the world from mathematics. Uh, and so I've to, only what, what is read a bit of step one. We're going to dismantle racism in maths, or we're going to dismantle maths? How, how did they put it? What's the title of their project? No, so they are going to dismantle racism in maths. Um, the, the step one is deconstructing racism in mathematics instruction. And I should say that they've got a lot of very good ideas here. <laughs> and I mean that seriously. They say that one very important thing to do is... Yeah. Um, is get math students to try and problem solve and and have discussions with one another. Right. And uh, and I think that's very important. It's very important. Okay. To, to I mean, that's not particularly controversial. I don't see how it's going to deconstruct racism, though. No, no, that actually has nothing to do with deconstructing racism. But then they they, they say teamwork is good not only for the mind, but also for the motivation that you need to 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 keep at it, and I think that's really really true. I think uh, some people, uh, I don't want to name any names, Nicholas Lorimer, but some people sometimes <laughs> get this idea of of calling themselves bad at maths, and it's kind mm. of like a cool rewarded idea. And you know, it's not, like no one's going to really criticize you for saying you're bad at maths, excepting me. Um, now let me let me let me let me uh, uh, provide another reason apart from the social kudos. Yeah. And this is the reason that I choose to be bad at maths. And that is, um, you don't have to work out the bill at the restaurant if you say you're bad at maths. Yeah, I know that. So you can you can spend a long time having a good conversation with whoever is sitting next to you, while uh, the idiot in your group who decided to study a degree in physics has to do the maths. Although my friend who did the study a degree in physics, um, he's got a master's in physics, claims whenever he's asked to do the bill that um, he doesn't do that kind of maths anymore. Yes, it's <laughs> below him. Somehow the bill is always either too much maths or not complicated enough right. for everyone at the table. I have the same thing. I've got a circle of friends that are also all engineers and, and physicists, and they... They love leaving it to like, they, 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 they're terrible because one of their friends is like a high school teacher. Yeah. And so, and so then she always, they always try and get her to do the bull. And then she's like, no, I that's... teach English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you've got to broaden your skill set, right? What if they, you know, I don't know, cancel English for being racist next? <laughs> well, watch this space. Okay. So, so to be serious for a moment, um, there, 
the, the, the line that's possibly the most disturbing to me is that they say that if you keep teaching maths the way that we're teaching it, which is that there's right and wrong answers, then you're going to enforce racism. Okay. And they say, um, I'll, I'm going to, I'm just going to, can I just read this out to you? Right. Um, go, go ahead. So, though many educators value conceptual knowledge, we often assess skills and uh, assess and test skills rather than concepts. Too often this occurs because math teachers prepare students for what is more easily measurable, reinforcing both quantity over quality and sense of urgency. Also, many math teachers prefer to teach procedural fluency so students engage with more complex problem solving because they believe that they have to do the basic or computation skills before they can apply the mathematics. But the, that idea also reinforces objectivity by requiring linear processing, which is oftentimes not necessary. Uh, this is related to sequential thinking without interrogating the need for that particular sequence of learning. In addition, many teachers are more comfortable teaching skills-based work, and if they do that more often, they are enforcing their own emphasized right to comfort. And the term objectivity appears many times in this 82-page document. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll give you another quote. I do, we do, you do. Uh, white supremacy white supremacy culture shows up in maths classrooms when I do, we do, you do is the format of the class. The structure of direct right. instruction doesn't always follow, allow for the full raise of ways of thinking, reinforcing objectivity and the idea that there's only one right way because it potentially dismisses the student's own way of processing and also stifles creativity. This also reinforces paternalism because the way the teacher's model becomes the standard of student learning. So I don't know why paternalism and not maternalism, and I really don't know what that has to do with white supremacy. Also, uh, <laughs> I made a study of when I was at Princeton University, uh, top rated undergraduate program in America. You, you, you went to Princeton. I, I didn't know. I, that I, I was bamboozled by various things. One of the things was that the Center for Jewish Life, uh, the uh, it was a building and many mm -hmm. of my friends as it turns out were Jewish and so occasionally we'd go there for like free wine on a on a holy day because uh, because Jewish holidays are banging um, but <laughs> to use the technical term but I also um, wanted to study quite serious mathematics and physics and right. the center for Jewish life was between the maths building and the physics building and those are two largest buildings on campus because Princeton's real uh kudos is built around its its mathematics and its physics right and i would go for lunch sometimes at the cjl uh you know great falafel great shawarma but it's kosher so meat sundays dairy sundays it was a, it was just it was always you, you had to do it for years before you stopped noticing that most of the kids in there were not particularly jewish looking uh Mainly, they looked very East Asian, uh, Central mm -hmm. Asian, and West Asian. Okay. So, from Europe, a lot of like Lithuanians, Armenians, Bulgarians, people from former Soviet satellite states, some Russians, a uh, lot of Chinese, a lot of Indians, a lot of Kazakhs. Yeah. There were just so many. And if you look at the professors, if you look at the grad students, uh, part of the reason that I chose to go to Princeton was that it had the... I looked up the numbers, it had the highest proportion of any Ivy League uh, of international students. So it's already a super international place. But that high proportion yeah. meant it was like 15% or something. But in the maths and, and physics departments, it was like Americans were a minority. <laughs> that and, says something about the state of the American empire, I think, but carry on. Yeah. And I'm uh, sort of have a close family friend, sometimes tongue-in-cheek, called my godfather, who was the headmaster of Sinstilians and then went on to become the sort of advisor to the king of the Buffer King, the richest tribe in Africa with all the platinum billions that they have, uh, for education, where he expanded and developed uh, sort of schooling for, for, for thousands and thousands and thousands of students. 
and then got involved in low-cost private schooling, which, in my opinion, is is South Africa's last best hope uh, for right. a better future. Yeah, no, it's really stuff. instrumental in spreading that stuff around. This is a great guy, Ian McLaughlin. I haven't mentioned before in the show, but there he is. A uh, very important man in my life. And because of hanging out with Ian, uh, he kind of pointed me to some, he got me thinking from a young age about pedagogy, about what actually helps students to learn. Mm. And not just taking the received wisdom, because in, in many fashionable circum, circles, the line parroting is bad, is just an accepted truth. And, you know, if you drop the racial language here, I do, we do, you do is the format of the class. It has nothing to do with white supremacy. That's been the structure of education systems in organized China (laughs) for literally longer than Christianity has existed. Right. I, I, I wanted to I wanted to actually say that a lot of this really just does sound like the things that have been flowing around in the education world's currents for a long time, just repackaged into a sort of woke uh, program, you know, they put a woke wrapping around what people have been trying to do for ages in redesigning curricula. Exactly. And if you look at, and so uh, sort of five years ago when I was trying to figure out what to do and I was working as an accountant, um, and moonlighting as an art critic, I also spent a lot of time reading into pedagogy, in part because mm-hmm. as a journalist, I saw that The Atlantic was a publication that I really respected, and they said, uh, the thing we're the most interested in taking submissions on is education. And I thought, I've had such an interesting education in South Africa. I thought St. Stithians was brilliant. Um, the Buffer King schools that I related, that I, I did some work with, amazing, fascinating stuff, the low-cost private education in South Africa, that was really what got me going. I thought I want to do, want to investigate this, and I want to, I want to write a thing to the Atlantic about how South Africa, a country with the world's worst public education bang for buck, is finding a way to get around one of the bad legacies of apartheid. Which I would say, you know, we talk about many things, but one of the bad things about apartheid is that it turns schools into places of, into political uh, organizations for rebellion. Right. Black students and black um, teachers had every good reason to resist the syllabus. And so that made schools a very rebellious place. But then black teachers coming out of that or black students coming out of that that then become teachers. Many have had a tough time and many that I've spoken to have spoken to this tough time of shifting from thinking of school as a thing to push against to think of school as a stepping stone to a value add life. Right. We have, it's also that, had the um, the problem of sad too and the, the sort of tightness of that. That that weaving of the politics and the education together has meant that the sort of politicization of the teacher of teachers themselves is really prevalent. And so, you know, uh, to be a teacher, I think for some has just basically been to be paid to be an activist um, yeah. for the union. Yeah, and and that really sucks. Unfortunately, my story, which would have been a great international scoop for the Atlantic, uh, was not accepted. Uh, but in researching that story, uh, one of the things that I came across was sort of academic literature, pedagogic literature about uh, parrot, parrot schooling, because right. all of the Armenians, Lithuanians, or everyone who came from the former Soviet Union, everyone who came from India, everyone who came from China, when you ask them, why are you guys so good at maths? I mean, you're obviously exceptionally genius. You were like the best in your school or your province or whatever. Now you come to Princeton to try and be the next Einstein. But like, why are there so many of you? They all had the same thing to say. Because we were forced to, you know, memorize our times tables. Yeah, as as people like to refer to the old school learning, right? Yeah. So this is what this is pushing up against. And the the head of the philosophy department at Princeton, by the way, uh, was really big into the philosophy of maths. And I asked him whether I should go into that field. And he said, you know, one of the tricky things about the philosophy of maths is that you do that and physics is that you have to get. Uh, what's their term here? They say it, it's 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 uh, the, this way of education emphasizes urgency. They're like, you have to be able to compute some things quite quickly in right. order not to get stuck in the computation so that you can step outside of it. And go and, and do something more interesting, yeah. Interrogate its underlying purpose, its meaning, its usefulness, and so on. And he right. and he described that as being an integral but very boring part of what he called mathematical maturity. 
And he said, and he challenged me to do this when I was 21. He said, you watch how your friends age. And you'll see some of them like Lekas Lorimer. He didn't mention your name. But he said, you'll see some people, some people will lose their willingness to, to perform simple computations. But that at, and, they, and so they'll be slower at that. But it, when right. it comes to logical computation, when it comes to using the basic structures that mathematics imposes, your peak is not when you're at university for most people. It act, you actually age into it. You become okay, more mature at picking out these things. And yeah, that went against what I thought. And then he sort of pointed me down the route of some literature. Anyway, so these guys are really going against a lot of good evidence. And the most damning bit of evidence is that America has the worst mathematics performance per GDP, GDP per capita right. in the world. Their math yeah. is so Which, bad. It, it's actually really interesting. I mean, the education system in America really isn't great. I mean, once you get to the top level, once you get to the top, university level, it's it, you know there's a lot of amazing universities in the US, but the yeah. high school level always just seems to be a bit of a drag. And, doesn't produce great results. And there are important exceptions, important private schools, important charter schools, charter schools basically yes. being low-cost private schools where the government gives the right. parents vouchers that they go and redeem at those schools and that is part of that's very unappealing to the left for whatever reason. They don't like that. But uh, all of the Americans in my year that I knew that were math majors came from charter schools. Some of mm. them were rich kids. Some of them were poor kids. Many of them from, were from New York State, which had a t the worst education system in America in the 70s, and then used charter yeah. schooling to get around that. But he has, he has a, the other half of this damning statistic. There was a survey done of like, I mean, I think it was like 150,000 students around the world, something absurdly large like that. Right. Where they measured their aptitude against a standardized test, because, of course, the standardized testing problem is very difficult across countries. And then they also did like a psychosymmetric test on the students to, to see how they felt about their own abilities. America performed the lowest on maths ability and the highest on how students perceive their own maths ability to be <laughs> on the planet. That that reminds me of of a survey of the e citizens of the EU where they asked all the countries who is the hardest working and who is the most trustworthy. <laughs> and everyone except the Italians said that the like least trust except for the Italians and the Greeks said the least trustworthy and the least hardworking were the Germ uh, were the Greeks. Yeah. The Italians said the Italians were the least trustworthy and the least hardworking, which is interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, the Greeks rated themselves top in everything. And this survey was done like two years after the, the, the thing. They said the Germans were the least trustworthy. <laughs> the Italians were the least hardworking. And they were the hardest working and the most trustworthy. That's amazing. <laughs> Dude, human beings, you couldn't, you, if you couldn't invent us. <laughs> if we didn't already exist you couldn't make it up so so the thing is you've got these two ideas the two extremes the one extreme is rote learning parrot learning right uh which misses the we do you do yes sorry i do as the teacher i do it on the board then you do it then then you do it together in teamwork to help learn from each other precisely the different routes to getting to the same solution that right. is that that's a good system but the extreme is just the teacher says it and you repeat it uh right. that's one extreme and the other extreme is fake it till you make it just believe that you're really good at maths and eventually your ability <laughs> will catch up to it okay so it just turns out that that lots of studies have been done on this and neither extreme is optimal but the least optimal extreme is fake it till you make it right so this bugs me tremendously about this paper it's taking the worst um impulse in the sort of general american psyche of of, of patting people on the head and and getting them to feel prestige and esteem and then trusting that their behavior will then follow up right. if only everyone I, thinks you're really good then you'll you'll do the hard work of of, of catching up and and i think that's uh there's that's a very dangerous even excluding the the, the toxicity of describing objectivity of describing a right versus a wrong answer of describing a trusted trialed and tested 
complex education system that includes teachers performing skill sets, then demanding right. students to reenact them, then demanding them to work it together as white. Even putting that to the side, just their basic idea is is very disturbing. Yeah, I, I know Thomas Sala has gone on a lot about um, uh, black kids in in poor U.S. schools um, sometimes being picked on for getting too high marks as being described as like being white. And and that like trying too hard in the classroom is a sign that you're a sellout to the system or something like that. Um, there was actually a great uh, episode. I saw of that the in Simpsons. the Cape Flats when I was yeah, when I coached yeah. debating in the Cape Flats. Yes, yes, I saw that badly. Yeah, no. Sorry, tell us good. about the Simpsons. Um, they decide to like I can't remember. There's some sort of feminists come into uh, Springfield High and they decide to heavily segregate the classes between girls and boys because they think that the girls are not being taught in a correctly feminine environment. And uh, the, Lisa Simpson, uh, who's of course very smart, she's like the top student in the school, she gets put in the girls' maths class and it's all like, how does the number seven feel? <laughs> and like, like a complete, it's a parody of that, that kind of learning you're talking about, where it's just all about sort of expressing these high level conceptual feelings. And so she starts dressing up as a boy and sneaking into the boys maths class, which is like a sort of hellscape of burning tires and people beating each other up. Um, but their maths education is really good. And, um, uh, well, you know, now the Simpsons is not capable of such poignant episodes but i think that episode is really good at describing these kind of clashes and how they can be um how, how that system can really fail people mm, mm, dude i like it so but here i want to push back against um definitely what a lot of daily friend readers would say and what i think a lot of people would say who learned maths at school who respected it as important um maybe did kind of well maybe didn't do absolutely fabulously but sort of thought it's a useful thinking skill and then sort of watched it go by in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Because the answer you're most likely to hear from a person in that position is it's crazy. How can you say that math is an objective? How can you say that there isn't one right answer? Uh, you must be a lunatic. If you think two plus two is five or three, this is just the definition of insanity. And, right. and I think that I just want to, what the basic point that I want to make is that there are interesting philosophical conversations that have been happening around mathematics for at least the last 3,000 years. <laughs> and we take. shouldn't, we shouldn't throw those conversations under the bus in order to simplistically and reductively uh, push back against these guys. And so, Nick, if you'll bear so, with me, I thought I might. So before I denounce you, before I denounce you as a heretic and have you, I don't know, thrown from a helicopter or whatever we do to work Easters, um, what explain explain precisely what you mean here? Okay, so one place to start is um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. This is one of the most exciting mathematical developments of all time. Okay. Let me explain it in a way that I think both captures the, the, the technical essence and that is understandable to someone who just has a, a passing interest in mathematics. The following statement is false. The previous statement is true. <laughs> ah, yes, <laughs> I have okay. heard this before, now at least take, some of this. Now take a statement which is a conjunct of those two statements. So my statement mm. is the following subclause of the statement is true, the previous subclause of the statement is false. Is that statement, the broader statement that holds both of these things together, you can imagine them one side of a card, the other side of a card, other side of this card is false, the other side of this card is true. Um, with that statement the broader statement would that be true uh yes it couldn't be true because what does the statement say it says the next bit of this is false ah yes and th and that bit says the previous bit of this is true which means right. 
that it can't be true that it's false. And you can flip them around right. to say, right. so right. it can't yeah. be true. The next statement is true. The previous statement is false. Those two things put together can't be true. This kind of problem is always used in pop culture as a way to defeat the evil supercomputer. Yes, there we go. Exactly. In every movie, you <laughs> put in the compute this and the computer's brain fries. But why does it fry? There's lots of statements that are false. Two plus two equals right. five is a false statement. Okay. This is why it's a problem. It's not just that it's a false statement. It's the following. So take this statement, which is the conjunct of those two statements, call it P. Okay. So we've said P is not true. And usually, since Aristotle, in fact, since Democrates, but let's just say since Aristotle, because you formalized it in a way that lasted longer. <laughs> I don't want to get into the minutiae of what happened two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> but since at least Aristotle, uh, there's been a rule called tratium non data. The third is not allowed. Something is either true or false, either P or not P. Mm. So if P is not true, then not P is true. Yes. In other words, it's not the case that this broad statement, the next part of the statement is false, the previous part of the statement is true. That's true. It's true that that's not true. Not P is true. <laughs> okay? Right. In the same way that not 2 plus 2 equals 5 is true. That's a true statement. Not 2 plus 2 equals 5. But the problem is... Falsifying this little Gadolian circle of madness also doesn't produce a true statement. It's not true that it's false. Mm. It doesn't fit into the false box. <laughs> and here's why that really matters. Logic since Aristotle was more or less built on the following thought. Not not P equals P. Right. So if something is not not true, then it is true. Yes. This is a logical consequence of something being true or not true. So either P or not P. So if it's not not P, that means it's P. Right. It's a clean division of everything into two things. There we go. Okay. But this statement falls neither into P or not P. Not P is not true. So not not P. But P is not true. So in this case, not not P does not entail P. Now, why does that matter? Because under strict formal logic, you need a rule called modus tollens. Modus tollens holds that if P, then Q, P, not P, therefore not Q. And under a certain disambiguation of if, then, conjuncts, logical constructs, that always comes out to be true just in case not not P entails that P. I feel like you need a whiteboard for this to do it properly. Maybe we're going to have to start going onto YouTube. <laughs> I'm, ne I'm nearly done. I'm nearly done. We, we used to have a whiteboard in our office. Sorry. <laughs> Why on, that matters is modus tollens is the simplest structure for what you've probably heard of as the reductio ad absurdum. The reductio right. ad absurdum is a very classical form of mathematical proofs. And when I was at Princeton doing proof-based maths, this is the first proof that we learned was proving that prime numbers are infinite. The next proof that we learned was that the square root of two cannot be expressed as a fraction of two whole numbers. And we proved both of those things using the reductio ad absurdum method, which means you, you assume that there is a highest prime number. You assume that's true. Then you do a whole bunch of maths that follows from that assumption. And then you find that one equals zero or some other absurdity. And then you say, look, right. we've hit an absurdity. Therefore, one of our assumptions must have been false. There, so and then say you say, the which assumption number. is false? Well, it was the only false assumption, the only assumption that could have been false, the only one that we made is that there's a highest prime number. Therefore, there can be no highest prime number. Same thing. There is a number that's a ratio of two whole numbers that gives you the square root of negative two. By the way, this is what Pythagoreans killed each other over, this proof. Uh, so maths and politics have a long history of being connected. And well, you, you, that, assume that that is, you, assume, you assume that, and, that there is... You assume that there is... And bean fields, but sorry. <laughs> sorry, yes, bean fields also matter. You assume that there is a number, there is a ratio, there's a fraction, 
which is equal to the square root of two. Uh, and and then you prove that one is greater than two. That's what you can prove if you make that assumption. And that's absurd. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, we must have made, because it's absurd, we must have made a wrong assumption. Uh, so therefore, uh, there must be no possible number that is equal to, that's a fraction that is equal to the square root of two. Now, reductios, where we've made reductio proofs, we have uh, often a one and a half to 2,000 years later, then come up with alternative ways of proving the same thing where you don't rely on yes. the reductio by, by expanding the sort of toolbox of mathematics. But reductios are very important, and you don't get a reductio without the thought, basically, that not not p is the equivalent to okay. p, yeah. and that it's either p or not p. So, so this, this statement basically shows that those tools are not as reliable as perhaps we thought. And that's interesting. When that came up, mm. dudes scratched their heads, just like Nicholas is literally doing right now, because we're <laughs> monkeys, and that's literally what we do when we come across a problem like this. And some guys thought, well, all of mathematics is wrong. And one of those guys who try to deal with this problem is Tarski, who's probably the second greatest logician after Gödel in the 20th century, widely agreed to be. And Tarski tried to use set theory, which is a whole other way of starting mathematics. And um, he, he proved that one equals two, uh, but that it wasn't a reductio. <laughs> that it's only true under very particular conditions. And I have mentioned this before. He, he didn't go mad. He wasn't saying that one plus one equals two. He was saying if you have a very strange meaning of one, then it turns out that you can turn it into two. And that strange meaning is where one equals the surface area of a sphere, not including its polar coordinates, uh, but including right. both complex real and, uh, and rational uh, coordinates and it, it, it's a very interesting proof but it's only true for that definition of one and that definition of one is never going to appear in anything that you ever need to know so don't worry about it he showed that in all other cases one equals one and that was very exciting there's a hundred page proof that one equals one um it's <laughs> good to know that the theory. basics are solid <laughs> and that after one comes to and that and he was part of an important project that the, a similar thing had happened in geometry where all geometry had been built on these Euclidean axioms and there'd always been a bit of a problem about thinking about parallel lines. So there was this thing called the fourth postulate. That turned out to be not true. That turned out to be true in a narrow sphere of geometry, namely geometry on a flat plane where you've got certain rules of, of moving from one spot to another on the Cartesian plane. Right. But it turns out that that is very un, that there's a whole bunch of geometry that you can do on a whole bunch of curved spaces and on multi-dimensional spaces where 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 the fourth postulate doesn't hold, but the other postulates do hold under revised definitions. And that turned out to be very important because we don't actually live in a Euclidean universe. In our universe, the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line. Right. Uh, Space-time bends, and yeah. Einstein couldn't have done what he did without mathematicians like Riemann coming and and philosophers of maths like Ernst Mach coming long before and showing right. how important it is to realize that we that Euclid had been making these assumptions about maths. He'd been telling everyone, "I do, you do, we do." He'd been making these basic assumptions that if you have two parallel lines, they'll never meet. Right. To be more precise, you have to define a parallel line. If you have two lines and you draw a line between them at 90 degrees on each point where they meet, then those two lines will never meet. And that's true on a flat plane. You've got two parallel lines. But if you are on a sphere like the Earth, it's not true. All of the lines that are longitudinal going from north to south pole. Right meet at 90 degrees to the equator so they're parallel in that sense but they all come to the same point at the north and the south pole so that's curved geometry in a very real way that also has been completely necessary for aviation and for proper naval calculations yes. since we started awesome. doing proper maps 
there's, there would be a lot of crashed planes and sunken ships, a lot more. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and and from what little I understand of of, of quantum mechanics and physics, um, you know, there's all sorts of things in the natural world that kind of don't make sort of clear logical sense, like the way that a a a a a a, a light is a wave and a particle at the same time. Depending on how you look at it, it just it seems. You know, th- things seem to hold states that shouldn't it, that shouldn't be able to coexist with each other, and yet they do. Um, so, just to be uh, precise, the the way of thinking about that is that to explain the same phenomena, physicists will often use mathematical models. They'll often use two mathematical models that are self-consistent. Each one doesn't admit of contradictions within itself, but across the two models, they're contradictory. They are inconsistent, right. and you use both models to describe the same phenomenon. Right, and and so I'm trying to park. I'm trying to say there are these absurdities. Gödel's absurdity was the one we started with. Now we figured out how to park that con- absurdity. That absurdity is a little bit like a little sheep on a field, and it turns out that for the kinds of ways that we think, if you don't have the sheep, that's absurd then it won't eat the grass in the right way and the grass won't grow and it won't poo in the right way to regenerate it. So you need a sheep in the field, but in the evenings, you need to pen it in. You need to have a little fence and you need to get the sheepdog to drive it into the little fence and lock it away. Because if you leave it out at night, it's going to eat all the flowers, it's going to eat your house, it's going to eat the grass down to the root and it's never going to grow back again. Absurdity, you mustn't just tolerate absurdity, but what we have figured out how to do is to locate and and narrow in and narrow in and narrow in on these absurdities precisely so that we can do more and more useful mathematics and more and more beautiful right. mathematics and elegant mathematics. Uh, the proofs that you're allowed to do when you can use a reader zeta function that tells you that the sum of 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 going all the way to infinity is for practical purposes equal to minus 1 over 12 you know, <laughs> put that in your pipe and smoke it. If you allow yourself to do that, you have to, in order to do that, you you have to do a transformation, which basically means you take rules from one part of the number plane and you apply them to another part of the number plane where nothing can exist. Uh, but you just pretend that something could exist. You can produce much more elegant proofs that we've otherwise already proven. So you, we've, we've found you can only prove the things we know to be true it's not like it's introducing madness, but it gives you a kind of shortcut. <laughs> right. This is interesting. I think this is, okay, maybe this is too abstract. Maybe this is too academic. Maybe I'm not really good at explaining. But I'm trying to encourage people to think that there are behind the accounting maths that I did. I was an accountant. I was a bookkeeper. I know the value of 2 plus 2 equals 4. I, and I know the beauty of that too. There's something so beautiful about squaring up the month's accounts and saying, look, this is how much money your business has left. I mean, sometimes it's yes. very sad, but it's so much better <laughs> to know. It is so much better right. to know. And we must do that, and we must square the bill up, and we must know what GDP is, and so on and so forth. But they, I don't want I don't want to give up for the sake of these, of resisting these fools being sponsored by the Gates Foundation. The beautiful philosoph- philosophical questions at the fringes of maths yeah. that, that are only... So, as I was taught, um, that are only more interesting the more skilled you are. So I'm seeing, I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a common thread here with our last episode where we talked about sort of judging uh, authoritarian figures, and that is that there's this kind of intelligence that one needs to develop about when to use something, uh, you know, about about context and when a certain way of looking at it is appropriate and when another way of looking at it is appropriate. And the wokeistas are essentially saying, well, because of these absurdities, we just throw the whole thing out and we just all go wishy-washy and run around all over the place doing whatever maths feels the best in our soul to arrive at our own truths, <laughs> right? And then the counter, the anti-wokeistas are sort of saying, no, there's one answer, one way to do this. You must, there's a sort of extreme of uh, there is an objective thing that we can all understand and everyone has to just get in line with it and uh these are the iron rules of the universe and go away, you illogical morons. Now, obviously, I would say I'm more sympathetic to the second position, but both are wrong yes. uh, because both both sort of have a 
a place in the universe. <laughs> and when I was at Saints, I mean, you, Mr. Huxbill was was one of our maths teachers, uh, who was kind of the head of the girls and boys departments. He'd left before you arrived, but he did mm. such a beautiful thing of encouraging us to to gain skills and to also see the beauty and the mystery of maths, to know that some things in mathematics are up for debate, that reasonable people do right. disagree about some things, but that is quite hard to get there. And if you really want to understand that debate, you need to gain some skills first. And Mr. Snayman was good at that too. I didn't find that distracting. I didn't find it racist or anti-racist. I found it beautiful. <laughs> it was completely on another plane. It was like, it, right. I, I got the same out of that as I did out of rugby and looking at I must admit, mostly women uh, rather than men who who just really were beautiful. And at <laughs> listening to Rachmaninoff and Bach and so on. You know, there were just things that made me want to live. And mathematics was has been one of those things my whole life. And I can just see in the pushback to these guys that more dudes are going to sort of insist only on the part of me. Well, this is... That yeah, is, this is a common that's, thing. That's, fab, that's fabulously useful, but not absolutely fabulous in itself. And but I don't want to give common up. Thing that, yeah. Right, exactly. This is a common thing that the, the work do is they they ruin a lot of things that could be good or could be interesting. Um, so I'll give an example from My Great Love, which is, of course, history. Uh, I'm fascinated by the less developed parts of history, the bits of history where we don't always have the great written sources, or maybe we do have written sources, but they're in languages that people don't speak that much, or the countries are not very well run, and so the archaeology isn't good in those places. Um, or these places just aren't particularly important or well-funded, so there was never much money to study the history in those places. I think, for example, Ethiopia, fascinated by Ethiopia's history. But it, it's not, you know, that well written about. Like, you can't just pick up your average school textbook and find out a lot about yeah. Ethiopia. There'll be, like, a page if you're lucky, yeah. right? And yet it yeah. was this interesting kingdom that interacted with the rest of the world in very interesting ways. The Wokistas want to focus on that stuff. Uh, to, or, or, or they don't actually develop history about something like Ethiopia. They just complain that it doesn't exist. <laughs> And then and, if someone is going to write about it, they're going to have to write about it as if it's a, right. oh, I'm so sorry for being white, but like. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry for this. And I'm so sorry that this hasn't been explored more. And really the most interesting thing in this society is we need to talk about, you know, uh, transgendered woman with fluid sexuality. And like, there's no incentive to do a, a sort of old fashioned basis narr based narrative history. Um, and, of course, the anti-workistas will just say, ah, you see, they're all trying to minimize the history of the West, and so they'll focus all their energy on writing about, you know, Rome and Greece and British Empire and all those kind of things. And what gets lost in the middle is a kind of interesting, uh, thoughtful examination of the history of these out-of-the-way places. It all just becomes political. Yeah. Which is... Oh, crying shame, and it's it's one of the many reasons why I'm eternally annoyed by the works because they just ruin everything. <laughs> no, man, they just suck the joy out of life a bit by being right. so oh, so removed from merit and beauty. Like there's something, you yeah. know, there's something ultimately relativistic about beauty. Right. I think it is in an in an important sense in the eye of the beholder. Um, that's this, not this, to say this. that you can't have genres which define the standards within which right. beautiful things get measured. But no, there's a, there's, this is a they, common sort of theme in this postmodern woke thought is like, well, if you can find one thing that doesn't fit neatly into the categories, therefore you can throw the the categories out entirely. And um, it's just so, I remember it's so yeah, a university class on gender where they showed a picture taken from behind of someone who looked like a woman but was urinating standing up. And they said, is this person a man or a woman? Well, you can't tell, so therefore gender doesn't exist. <laughs> it's like, no, guys, there are a few people who it's a little bit more complicated for, but by and large, <laughs> you can you can, you can see some pretty useful things from male and female. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. That was literally what they said. <laughs> Dude, and, and, and one of the things that 
you know, I, that I resent, just to maybe put a bow on this and then we can move on to an interesting topic you wanted to bring up, is mm. that when I was when I was a kid, you know, we are kind of talking about a culture war thing. And right. look, I wish we could go on about this forever. I think Frege, I think having a conversation about this without talk, mentioning Frege or Hans Weinger, great, great German 19th century uh, philosophers of mathematics and science. Is, is a sin, but I'm not going to get into this stuff because I think we should move on <laughs> and just and just keep the context. The context is that America has defined the culture war as the West versus the, the Westernism versus multiculturalism, and that's a bad idea. Yeah. In part, I've said why I don't think the West you know, really means anything useful. Um, you should rather say the best, like the best mathematics. I don't believe in Western mathematics. Right. I believe in the best mathematics, and a lot of the best mathematicians. Uh, came from east of the meridian or were not white cetera, or whatever you want to say. And like I said, in Princeton today, dude, I've got no doubt <laughs> that, that many of the great mathematical developments in the next 50 years are going to come out of that university from the center of Jewish life, which is full of Chinese people grumbling about the fact that they couldn't have like milk with their meat. <laughs> And right. it'll be fabulous, you know, because <laughs> um, they, they didn't have the time to walk to the next dining hall, which was only 10 minutes away because they were so <laughs> flippin' busy figuring out these mysteries that I've only yeah, just how the universe with, works. <laughs> and that my comprehension of is much, much more humble. Alas. Um, but, but so the West versus the best is one way of putting it. Liberal versus conservative is another way. And I also have a beef with that. When I was a kid, I called myself a fiscal conservative from about the age of 13 or 14 because Trevor Manuel was my hero. I really liked Todd Bumbeki. He was my hero. He said, I'm an African. And, and he explained that Gabriel is also an African and that I belong here. And that meant a lot to me. And I liked what he was doing. And the AIDS thing hadn't really uh, bubbled up yet. And I was a kid. Okay. And I still uh, like a lot of that project. And everyone was saying, why aren't they giving all the money away? And they said, no, it's good to be fiscally conservative. And I listened to the arguments and I read the Sunday newspapers after having Sunday lunch at the Bowls Club, like a precocious little brat. And the argument, I weighed them up. And to my mind, fiscal conservatism made more sense. It just made more sense to not borrow money that you don't have as a government, which means you end up paying interest to rich people. That I didn't. I, I, that idea really irritates me, even now, um, and it and it's just been irritating me for for 17 years since I was 13. Um, but I stopped calling myself a conservative in any. I would never call myself a conservative in any sense uh, when I was in America, because that word was just. If you were conservative, it meant like you you're racist and you uh, right. hate gay people. And I, you know, I thought. I occasionally at a party for Halloween, I almost always dressed up as a woman. <laughs> uh, cons conservative would never do that. So I thought I must leave it. But then I thought on the, after on the secret after, uh, podcast, we'll have to release those photos. But anyway, uh, yeah, for, for <laughs> members, when we start the Patreon group where you can, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but after working at the RR, I thought it's important to just like, you know, figure out a little bit where you generally come from. Now, I think sometimes uh, borrowing is very important and useful, but like generally I have this idea of fiscal conservatism. So it is fair. Some, if someone wants to pigeonhole me that way, they can. And I, and I hope to I hope to never get dogmatic about it. But there's another kind of conservationism. I realize like I'm a conservationist. I do really like preserving uh, natural beauty so that people can go and partake in it. It's a conservative thing to do, and I really like it. And the third kind of conservatism, which I was confronted the most with at university, studying philosophy and maths and physics and so on, was intellectual conservatism, or programmatic conservatism, as W.V.O. Quine put it, great uh, German logician who came to Princeton after the war. Uh, first one. Um, and Quine put it nicely, but it was just a running thread through just about every political theorist and ethicist and epistemologist and metaphysician that I read, which is that it's generally a good idea to try and save as much from the theories that already exist as you right. can so that a new theory is building up. Now, 
sometimes a moment comes along, like Gödel, like Gödel's uh, 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 incompleteness theorem. Sometimes uh, in the 19th century, there was this nightmare around um, Euclidean geometry. And, and you wonder, do we need to blow everything up? Have we started from a false premise that's so bad <laughs> that we really need to start over again? And the conservative line was, we don't want to say that that can never be possible, but we do want to say that that is always the last resort. Right. If there's any hope of saving the good stuff that's come before, that's part of your first duty in, in building right. the body of knowledge. And, and that's exactly the opposite of what I see with these work guys. So, so for example, parrot learning. There was too much parrot learning. There was not enough teamwork. There was too much right. rote exercise, not enough problem solving. That is, that is a standard description of basic and higher education systems um, pretty much around the world for a lot of the 19th century and 20th centuries. And there was the Methodist strait uh, between the Viennese school I, and the Berlin school, and that started dissolving it, and uh, uh, wonderful uh, you know, contributions were made from left field, and it started to dissolve. And, and so we figured out how to maintain a kind of reflexive equilibrium where you keep the old stuff and you try and build up on top of it. You keep the old stuff and try and build up on top of it and just weed out one bit at a time the bad old things and introduce one bit at a time the good new things. And these guys, the, the guys running the circus today, just uh, are, are explicitly opposed to that. And, and they want to say that everything that you've ever learned um, – that's had a white name attached to it, like Pythagoras or Euclid or, or anything. Yeah. Well, uh, as that's all bad. It all has to be thrown away, start all over from scratch. And so thinking of oneself as an intellectual conservative, like very left wing thinkers thought of themselves that way in terms of tax policy, redistribution and so on. Very centrist thinkers too. It's not a, it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with how you think the body of knowledge should grow. And I just encourage our listeners to 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 toy with that in their minds and see if they do uh, have an intuition about it, see if they can challenge that intuition in themselves. I think we, we've tried to sort of spell out some ways of doing that. But that it's a kind of part of the battle of ideas that you don't want to, to become a pawn in that game. Sort of own your own mind, uh, come up with your own views about uh, intellectual conservatism versus uh, intellectual um, reconstructionism or deconstructivism, radicalism. Uh, radicalism. Yeah, it's got the, the foul stench of the French Revolution about it. <laughs> well, yeah, the greatest intellectual. I mean, the deconstructivists coming out of France uh, after World War Two, they that was their project. They, they were like, everything is is a result of a power structure. That's everything that you think you know. Foucault said, power is knowledge. Not knowledge is right. power. Not if you know something, you'll be able to do more. No, no, no. If you're powerful, power then literally you builds knowledge. Yeah, builds the truth. And the power structure has been bad. Therefore, we need to begin all over again. And that's a battle that that sort of becomes more and less relevant. And my reading of South Africa and America, and the Anglosphere generally's uh, 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 political uh, balance of forces, is that that's a battle that's sort of coming to a school near you. Or a high school, or a university, or a, or just an issue that touches on your life. So it's something to think about. Right. So thank you once again, France. Uh, you've given us Napoleon, and now you've given us this. Anyway, <laughs> now because Gabriel's been uh, bashing everyone over their head so much with theorems and and mathematical proofs, uh, I don't have a lot of time to talk about the other oh, thing, sorry. but I will do my best. Uh, and that is the Pope, I believe today, today being Friday, um, depending on, I don't know when everyone's going to be listening to this, but um, is, is visiting Iraq. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but from the little quick uh, search I did online, I don't think a Pope has ever visited Iraq before. Apparently, Pope John Paul II tried to visit it in 2000, but Saddam Hussein told him to go away, um, so he didn't go. And this is pretty interesting, actually. Uh, I was also looking up who Iraq's Christians are. So very, very long ago, 
um, Iraq, Iraq had a Christian community which fell out of favor with the rest of the Christian world because they had a different Christological doctrine. They believed that Christ had two natures that were wholly separate from each other, one human and divine. It's terribly complicated. Anyway, it's point the is, oil and got, water. Is it like oil and water which don't mix, or is it like right, water so and wine which do mix? So I speak under under extreme correction here because I am not a theologian, theologist, theologist. Um, I believe the orthodox view in Catholic and Protestant churches is that Christ has two natures which are sort of glued together, one divine and one human. But the, the Nestorians believe that these things were separate. Anyway, it matters a lot to them back then. And so they got kind of separated from the Christian world. Um, and I think most of them were wiped out sometime in the time of the Mongol conquest or the Turkic conquest of that area. But there's a the majority of Christians in Iraq today, and there's not a lot of them, um, are part of a church which is in communion with the Catholic Church. So they are a type of Catholic, um, not the sort of Roman Catholic, but they are still, you know, in allegiance to the Pope. There's not a lot of them left, though. Um, there were a couple hundred thousand, I believe. Uh, and the trouble of the last years, particularly the rise of the Islamic State, really decimated their numbers. Thousands and thousands fled the country and uh, many others were killed. So it's been pretty bad for them. So I understand why the Pope wants to go there. You know, he wants to kind of visit these sort of places where the Christian world has been under a lot of attack. And uh, we did an episode a while ago on why Pope Francis is perhaps does not deserve the reputation, perhaps, that he's been given. Um, I'm not a fan of him uh, for various reasons, but I think this is a genuinely good thing. Uh, so some of the cool things the Pope is going to be doing, apart from saying mass in Baghdad, um, which he's he's actually going, I believe, to a church which uh, like a year or two ago had 50 worshippers gunned down by uh, radicals. Um, Islamic radicals. He's also going to be visiting the highest ranked Shiite cleric in Iraq, um, in the Shiite holy city of Najaf, which is in southern Iraq in the desert there. Uh, so that's pretty interesting, because um, mm. I think it's the mm. first time anyone in either of their positions has met each other. <laughs> uh, and those institutions are so old, hey? Right, right. I'm I'm not sure when the when because you know it's it's really I don't know the history of Shia Islam very well, but like uh, I think this particular city it's only holy to Shiite Muslims who make up the majority of Iraqis and not to Sunni Muslims who are the majority of Muslims in the world. Um, uh, and and Shiism has often been quite sort of an underground religion uh, because in most countries it was suppressed by mainstream Muslims, but. Um, that aside, uh, it is it is pretty unusual for for sort of made these major clerics to meet each other, and I wonder if anything good will come of that. Um, you know, in Iraq, this the guy he's meeting does actually have quite a lot of political power um, mm. over over a lot of the more radical Shiite militias there, um, because of course religion is still a very big fault line in Iraqi society. So maybe the two having a nice cup of tea or something will be uh, the start of. Uh, things perhaps calming down a little bit there. I, I think there's a lot of politics that needs to change too, but it's good for kind of preparing the ground for um, a new future. It's one of those esteem movements that just sends the signal. Right, exactly. Look, the most respected Shiite guy in town is happy to go and meet with the most respected Christian in town and be right. civil with one another. And that just sets, that's role modeling. Right, exactly. Uh, the Pope's also going to visit the ancient city of Ur, just spelled U-R. Um, Ur. Ur. Which From whence the Afrikaans is, word comes Ur. <laughs> <laughs> which I believe is where uh, the prophet Abraham is supposed to have been born. So it's very important because, of course, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are all Abrahamic religions. Um, and that's all in reference to that Abraham, I believe. Uh, and so it's like a very important sort of place in the world for basically th the world's three most influential religious groups. Uh, so that'll be pretty interesting. Now, I must say, you can imagine what the security is 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 like on this thing, because you know, Jeez, if if you're if you're the the, the Islamic State, I'm sorry, yeah, and you want to get into the news, 
killing the Pope would be quite something. Um, and uh, <sighs> it's not like they're not used to, you know, blowing up churches and mosques in this part of the world because they do it all the time. Um, and of course, uh, he seems to be meeting more with the Shiites, which means, uh, you know, if you're a, if you're a Sunni extremist like a like ISIS are, um, planting a bomb underneath the table between the the Grand Ayatollah and uh, the Pope would be something of a coup. It would probably backfire on them in the long run, but you can see how, in their sort of deranged worldview, it would make mm. some sense. Mm. So, with that in mind, I would not want to be a bodyguard or a soldier looking after the Pope today because one do they have the Swiss guards? I feel uh, they do. The, the Pope always has these guys in these funny outfits with long stockings and yellow and purple sort of poofy pants. Do they right. are they the are they going to go be the bodyguards? Uh, so I think there's two halves of them. I think there's the sort of ceremonial half, which does like the stuff for tourists in the Vatican yeah. City. Okay. And then there's the the actual ones who do the bodyguarding. Um, and I, I suspect that they are they are probably all there right now around him and his entourage. He also went with seventy five reporters, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> Mm. I'm all slowing him around on the plane. Yeah, but if you've ever watched European TV, like I watch TV in Ireland and um, Russia, and I've sometimes tuned into German TV, th those guys in South America, I mean, there, there are just so many countries in the world that follow the Pope very yeah. closely. So it's not that is not an Anglosphere thing. The, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. Pope doesn't speak in English as much as he speaks in a whole bunch of other languages. So, um, uh -huh. yeah, no, it's it is quite historic though because like you sort of think the Pope really doesn't go to the Islamic world very often, um, and this is this is quite something. So I, from a from a sort of history perspective, I think it's pretty cool. Um, it's also a say, kind of highlighting that 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 these you know the the Middle East is you know I think a lot of people just view it as like a place where Muslims and Arabs live. Right. Mm. Like if you don't know anything about the Middle East, that's kind of the two yeah. perceptions you have of it. But it really is pretty complicated, which is one of the reasons why it's always such a mess is because it is really complicated. And, you know, you've got uh, tons of ethnic groups, Kurds, Assyrians, Turkomens, Turks, who are different from Turkomens, <laughs> um, uh, different Farsi. kinds of Arabs. Uh, yeah, yeah, Farsi, uh, 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 Armenians, Christians, Jews, different types of Muslims, different types of Christians. And a lot of them have beefs with each other that go back a very, very long way. Um, so if I can just say a quick theological thing, because you mentioned Abrahamic religion. Um, yeah. there's, there's a sort of uh, tendency a little bit after Nietzsche to think of uh, the major religions christianity and and muslim islam to be uh plato for the masses uh that's that's how nietzsche put it i think um right but but there's something in the story of uh, of islam which kind of predates socrates and is quite interesting uh, the story of abraham so socrates's first kind of great tech uh, philosophical treatise or, or or exercise in urethra is to ask the question is it good because the gods love it or, or do the gods love it because it's good uh and that sort of asks you to 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 try and weigh up two concepts that are often so inextricably bound that uh it's at the very least interesting and i think the story of abraham which predates this uh does the same thing a very interesting way right uh because abraham is asked to go and kill his son in order to make a sacrifice to god and he's willing to do it uh even though he kind of doesn't think he can't make a sense of how it could be good, but you know, God has asked him to do it, so that's how it could be good. So he's kind of answering the question in that sense. But then God asks asks him not to do it. Right. So Abraham's view might be the fallen view, might be the human view, namely that um, it's good because God says so, and God could say that something is bad is good, and and then you just have to go along with it. But that's not necessarily God's view. Right. Because because God's thinking is opaque. And and his view was not ultimately to to sacrifice your son in his honor. In fact, it was yeah, to kind yeah. of stop sacrifice. And it's very early, interesting theological moment of 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 stopping sacrifice. And right. and so it leaves right. that tension open, uh, but in a very interesting way. 
and 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 the point of that in terms of this political issue that you say is that is that i i just think that often uh groups with uh, different uh allegiances different esteem teams or whatever uh can get along better when they kind of agree on the good and allow everyone to have their own rationale about how you got there and that's long <laughs> yes. been the, the project between jews christians and muslims and within sects of those religions is like okay we are all kind of trying to be good people um and we're at our worst when we're punishing each other for doing it for the wrong in the wrong name we're at our best when we're trying to sort of help each other out and persuade each other and sort of set a good example um right. which 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 i think is 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 quite sweetly tied to that original abrahamic story of like the bottom line is you know don't kill your son <laughs> like that's god's word i think everyone sort of can and should be on board with that you know and then leave the interesting right. philosophical stuff to when you're very calm uh on another day and, and you're feeling very amicable and excited about bringing out good ideas rather than beating each other on the head right and so um on that happy note uh, i hope uh, that the Pope is all right, and I hope that peace and all that good stuff comes to Iraq, um, which is a very troubled country, but a very fascinating one. Um, and yeah, I think we should call it to a close there. Um, I have a timer for how long we're supposed to be recording, but I see that it froze uh, sort of just before the hour, so I actually don't know how long this recording is going to be. Hopefully it's vaguely, uh, vaguely a reasonable time. Okay, uh, and we're a little bit over time. Nicholas has the best recommendation, but I really want him to do it justice. So I'm going to ask him to not give the North Korean thing. Ah, okay. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's so good, dude. You can't, you've got, it needs like a good five minutes. Okay. Uh, so what, you want me to do it now? No, no, because we're over time. So okay, I'm okay. going to, I'm shutting down your recommendation. I'm recommending that you have a fabulous weekend. Um, That's a good idea. If you if you if you are interested in the Quran, I, I've I've been I said at the end of last year that I was reading a little bit of it. I've read a little bit more. Oh, it's a fascinating text. Uh, you know, if it's if it's just super foreign to you, if you've got no other interest than sort of bridging that gap of of learning something about the world, um, uh, read a page. Uh, I can't tell you the page that I read that I like best yet because I, I I lost my note, but I'll I'll tell you that next time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, uh, it's it's funny you say that because I've actually been reading the Bible recently um, for no for no particular reason other than I felt like it. Anyway, uh, thank you very much everyone for listening. We hope that you have a most wonderful weekend, week, all that good stuff, and we will try to be with you again next week whenever we manage to get it together. Hopefully, it won't be Wednesday again. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the flag of liberty flying, everyone. Cheers. Grr, 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 grr. Grr, grr.